the dance exchange, we have four questions. Every project we take on looks somehow at these four questions. Who gets to dance? Where is the dancing happening? Where, where is it happening? What is the dancing about? And why does it matter? I think the four questions are good for most professions, actually. But let me tell you quickly. So I'm going to just tell you a quick little few stories from each of those questions and see how this relates to you. And perhaps, uh, it, to me, there's thousands of ideas in there about uh, innovation. I, I hope you'll hear them, even though I know I'm just talking about dancing. <clears throat> um, I was trained as a classical dancer. In fact, I performed for President Kennedy when I was 14 as one of a ballerina in this little troupe. Um, but when my, uh, but eventually I left classicism, which is an story in itself, and was turning to modern dance. And my mother got um, uh, diagnosed with a virulent form of cancer. She was given a very short amount of time to live. Luckily, I was able to go home and be with her in these last few months of her life. And she did things that people do who know they're dying, if you're lucky enough to know that. She imagined many, many people in her life that she wanted to see again. And I imagined them all as old. When she died, I went back to Washington where I was living. And I wanted to make a piece about what my family had gone through. And I wanted to have old people be in the dance. Now, <clears throat> this is 1975. And I like to remind people that in 1975, this is pre-jogging. <laughs> it's amazing what has changed in the United States in the last 30 years. We are used to you know, practically naked people stretching on the streets, not against light posts anymore, but LEDs. But anyway, they're out there. <laughs> At the time, you didn't see that, and you certainly didn't see old people, because Robert Butler had just written his book, Why Survive? In 19, and it was just the beginning, beginning of the idea that there could be some kind of conscious aging. Anyway, I found this old home near my house eventually, because I didn't even know where they were, but I did find one. I asked the lady, could I come in and teach a dance class? She thought I was absolutely ridiculous. But see, I was desperate. And that, to me, is the thing about innovation. I was desperate. It's not like I wanted to break the rule that, you know, there should be old people on stage. I, you know, I was following the rules. I was only in my 20s. I thought that was getting old for my profession. Talked to, she said, however, she'd lost her entertainment. She needed something on Thursday nights. I could come in for $5 a week and do whatever I wanted. <laughs> and the first night I went, and it's not unlike this, they, except that the, I mean, they were seated like you guys are, but the room was also the room where the bingo was. They ate. I mean, it was just one of these very um, working class places uh, where people were trying to stay out of nursing homes. And I'd, I promised them I would perform a little. I performed a little bit. Then I said, OK, now it's your turn. We're going to exercise together. I said, everybody, I want you to turn your head like this. And of course, nobody moved. <laughs> I thought they couldn't hear me. <laughs> and I think it's interesting to think about that, because if you, if you are not in relationship with people, all you can believe are the stereotypes, right? That's all you know. So I yelled, OK, everybody, turn your head. You know, and again, nobody moved. So I began to run back and forth in front of them. And their heads went like this. <laughs> and I have to say, and it's the reason I tell this story over and over, it changed my life. I knew in that minute that everything I had ever known about dance, which I started when I was, was going to be challenged by being in this environment, and that the world was going to open up for me in ways I could not imagine. And that is exactly what happened. The old people became my teachers. They continued to perform after we made the piece about my mother's death. They were um, angels welcoming her to where she was next. They were incredible. Uh, 
I thought the show was over. They said, you know, we need to rehearse more. That's what I mean. They were my teachers. <clears throat> I learned very, very much from them. Those are two of the questions we'll be considering in this episode. Hello again and welcome. My name is Kirsten Walsh and you're listening to Podcasts on Process. Podcasts on Process takes a peek into the creative process of artists and considers what tools they use to create their innovative work. In these inaugural episodes, the inspirational spark is choreographer Liz Lerman. Since then, if you see a dance exchange performance, you always see old people. Right now, the company ranges from 20s into their 70s. We have a very, very busy, busy, busy touring schedule, and the seniors are amazing. And it's incredible to me that audiences are still so moved simply by seeing the old guys on stage. One is a man who'd been in the military, retired at 53, never danced. Now he's in his 70s. Martha Graham says it takes 10 years to become a dancer. He has. And uh, I think people will retire and become artists. I think that is one of our futures. So who gets to dance? Where you just heard from Liz. The opening was from a talk she gave at the Business Innovation Factory. Right off the bat, you hear Liz talking about the four main questions the Dance Exchange considers before making any piece. Liz started the Dance Exchange in the mid-1970s, and while she's no longer the director of the company, these four questions still apply to her own practice. The first being, who gets to dance? I love seeing true craftsmen and women working at what they do best. But there's something particularly special about seeing a non-professional express themselves artistically. Liz Lerman is known for including non-traditional performers in her work. But why is their presence on stage so important or worthwhile? In this episode, we'll talk to several artists who incorporate and are inspired by the stories and movement of, quote, untrained makers and dancers. First, we'll hear from Elizabeth Johnson, who worked with and at the Dance Exchange for many years, and second, from Washington, D.C.-based artist Holly Bass. We'll also get the chance to hear from Paul Hurley. Paul is the veteran who jumped on board Healing Wars and has been touring with the team since it premiered in June of 2014. Knowing my background as a visual artist and my current pursuits as a curator, Liz connected me with dancer and choreographer Elizabeth Johnson. And she's one of these, you know, she's an example of, um, somebody should write a book apropos of these conservatories about her because <clears throat> she's the kind of performer that audiences adore, but peers don't necessarily because she isn't in the stratosphere technically. She's not, um, I think in dance and I think in classical music and so on, mm -hmm. you, technique is God. And if you don't have a certain kind of technique, people can be dismissive, even though you are a phenomenal artist and performer. This is one of the, you know, one yeah. of the things that I fought for so long. Mm -hmm. I said, I, you know, technique is the I, I, idol of, I-D-O-L, the idol. Yeah. Of, of the arts and uh, Elizabeth the, the natural progression of an artist into choreography you know, you know Elizabeth's natural progression was towards engagement mm -hmm. and um, 
in no way diminishing her artistry, her worth, her value. And meanwhile, whenever she's on stage, that's who audiences look at. So, and here's a person who exceeded, exceeded what even a brilliant technician would have done in, with their life. Elizabeth has exceeded it. Elizabeth connected with the Dance Exchange after seeing them perform while she was an undergraduate student. And she'll be the first to tell you that the experience brought her to tears. I started at Dance Exchange in um, 1998, the day after I graduated from Connecticut, after the, <laughs> yeah, the day after I graduated from Connecticut College. The Dance Exchange had done a um, two-week residency at the Guard Art Center. Um, and I was, um, I at the time was doing community-based work without knowing that there was such a thing as community-based work. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I was part of the, the community tour that was a part of that. Uh, and I, a class that I was teaching with mothers and daughters performed in like windows. And I was also, I also was making my senior piece that had 88 people in it in a campus of 1200 people. Oh my gosh. Like, yeah, that was being performed. Parts, some people were performing that in a parking lot as part of the tour. And then I saw the Dance Exchange Company perform and I was like, okay, I've never wanted anything more in my life than I to know, know about I know exactly this. where I'm supposed to be. Yeah, exactly. And so I was like, and I was bawling like all the way through, oh. just like, like heaving, crying. Um, like I was just so moved by the performance and I was like still crying like that in line <laughs> when I was like going to talk Liz and, um, and I was like, I, I need to know. I don't can't remember what I said, but she said, Oh, well, we're starting this new intern program. We're having a Institute uh, in a couple weeks. Do you want to come down to see how things go? Yeah. So basically I got in my Ford tourist station wagon the day after graduation from college, I went down to dance exchange and I stayed there for 12 years. The project I specifically wanted to talk with Elizabeth about was called It's Not Just Black and White. In 2011, Elizabeth's colleague, Gregory Sale, and other collaborators launched It's Not Just Black and White. It was a three-month residency exhibition investigating the complex issues at stake in the criminal justice system in Arizona. The exhibition was a part of the University Art Museum's Social Studies series, where the museum became an active laboratory and studio. As Elizabeth mentioned earlier, she had been working with mothers, daughters, and teens with the Dance Exchange. The project she facilitated in It's Not Just Black and White created a virtual space for incarcerated mothers and their daughters to dance with one another. In the scope of this project, I was thinking, where are the women and what is this? And thinking particularly around distance um, and the relationship that, these, that incarcerated women must have with their daughters and is there a role that dance can play? So we envisioned this um, this uh, um, piece uh, project, and it's not a piece; it's a project um, that would have me working um, with the with the women in jail concurrently with working with their daughters in the museum um, oh, as okay. a site. The museum itself was a site for um, it was the museum itself was an open space. Um, had some tables like uh, like uh, module furniture, but the museum exhibit was painted black and white stripes um, by inmates who were on a day's furlough. Um, so they came in and they actually painted like wearing their black and white stripes. Wow. They painted 
walls and it was a whole like there was a squat team member for each of the each of the incarcerated men so um so i worked with the so i worked with the 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 girls in the um in the museum and i worked with moms in the jail and we did um we did six weeks of programming and gregory and i both um landed on the pearl as a metaphor for the work because the pearl is an organism that that builds value um under pressure um and and although we never articulated like this this so so clearly to like the women or the girls but it's it's like there is this there's you can't see my gesture but it's um that there is some sort of something that's considered an irritant and that in an enclosed space under pressure builds value and we thought that that was that was a nice um, metaphor for thinking about what what incarceration can be mm-hmm. and so we did so I, I built that down into three chapters of beauty change and value so the first chapter of beauty um, both the, the women and the girls talked about what they find beautiful um, their own images of beauty and how those might differ from other like more stereotypical or how the media projects images of beauty and then specifically what they find beautiful about themselves or what they find beautiful about their mother or their daughter mm. And then um, the second part was uh, about change. Um, and we just looked at um, different things that change, metamorphosize, and then um, also you know, did, some, did some writing and thinking and talking and dancing about um, how we're evolving and how we're changing. And then the women really brought up how they were changing as a result of the incarceration. And then the last one was about value and what kind of, what do we value, what kind of, and specifically for the women, um, what it, what kind of values do they want to um, pass on to their daughters? And then what was lovely is that then Gregory gave uh, all the women um, pearls that he had um, from a collection, oh, these okay. tiny little mother of pearl pearls. And um, he had one of our last things is that the women had made jewelry for their daughters. So the culmination was not a performance. Um, it was, was a work. That be my next question. It was a workshop that was um, that was a virtually connected workshop, so that through a super tenuous Skype connection with the women in in a courtyard, in their jail, this tiny courtyard in their jail, and the girls in the museum, um, the they danced with and for each other. So there were some question in mind for today's episode who gets to make i asked elizabeth why she advocates for and develops community-based social practice and choreography yeah i am not i am somewhat uncomfortable with the wording of gave power um and i and i think it might just be in my own thing um but we all have power, uh, and sometimes that's just um, unrealized or unrecognized by ourselves or others. And for me, if I am empowering someone, it means I have power and I'm giving my power in some ways to them, or I am like I am like I am some sort of a hierarchical relation of like I am empowering you, like. I, you can't see my gesture, but I'm reaching out, you know? Yeah. And and I, I think that there's something about this work that provides space for something to happen 
that as a if I'm a choreographer working independently or working with a group of of just similar uh, dancers, I it, there's only so much that I can make, right? That mm-hmm. that that by us working with a broad range of diverse individuals, there's just so much more in the room because you have so much more facets of experience, uh, so much more um, like vocabulary to work with, so many more ideas. And so, so yes, it might be a powerful type feeling or it might be empowering even, like it might for a person feel powerful in that. Um, and I felt definitely think it was it was very um, it was a powerful experience for the women, but I don't feel so much like I'm giving that to them. My name is Holly Bass. I am a writer and performance artist. When I was considering who else to interview for this episode, several colleagues mentioned Holly Bass's work. She's a multidisciplinary artist who's shown at the Smithsonian National Museum of African Art, the Emerge Art Fair in Washington, D.C., and internationally in Holland, South Africa, and Italy. When we got together for our interview, we discussed one of her more recent projects, Black Space. The work that I've most recently done is the Black Space House, and uh, it's a tiny house. It's eight feet by eight feet, and the foundation of the house is the map of Washington, D.C. Where is this? Well, it just came down. So it was um, first built for the Emerge Art Fair, and it was outside on the lawn, and in addition to the house, which functioned as its own installation, I staged a number of uh, public performances and rituals. And then the house moved to Martin Luther King Jr. Library, the Central Library downtown. And it was there for um, a, a full month. And we also did a range of public programming. Okay. Um, yeah, so it was really exciting. I did a, a rent party, which is kind of harkening back to this jazz age tradition of hiring a band and, and making food and drink and inviting the neighborhood over to, for a fee to have a party, which you would then use to pay your rent. Sort of a, a Friday night tradition, um, particularly in Harlem and um, other black centers, cultural centers in the US. And then there were variations that continued in the 70s and 80s, but then it would be a DJ instead of a live jazz band. Um, so we had a house rent party. Uh, we had, at, at Emerge I did a blessing, which was more like a house forming. Okay. And I had a, a Yoruba priest poet friend oh. lead the blessing, and um, another cultural performer, uh, Liz Andrews, was a the song leader. So we did traditional um, Negro spirituals, in particular, "I'm Building Me a Home," and then there was a drummer and myself, and so we sort of guided people through um, not only an artistic experience but also. Um, one of the things I've been doing lately is kind of taking the structure and outline of traditional uh, worship services and applying them in the art world context. My proposition is that if you live in D.C., mm-hmm. regardless of your ethnic background, that you're occupying black space. 
and that it's a cultural black space, much like Harlem, Detroit, Oakland. And all of these spaces right now are having huge demographic shifts and uh, a major decrease in the black population and as, as a result, a major shift in the social culture. Mm -hmm. And this to me is not about debating gentrification or not gentrification. My thinking is that if we can kind of shift our idea of cultural preservation, so that it's not just about historic buildings, but cultural preservation, meaning the energy and the dynamic of the people who live in a given place, and how do we preserve that? And it's, again, it's very ephemeral, yeah. as is most of my work. But that's those are the kind of questions I've been grappling with. Holly has been commissioned by many institutions throughout her career. One of my favorite commissions came from the D.C. Department of Public Works, and the performance is called the Touch Truck Ballet. Part of the ballet includes two cherry picker operators gracefully moving their trusted equipment through the sky to Louis Armstrong's What a Wonderful Life. And on the ground, employees in full uniform dancing together to Pharrell's Happy. And then following the uh, trash and recycling guys and how fast they are and how strong they are and looking at their movement as choreography. There's certainly choreography between the crews. Mm -hmm. Like when you have a crew a driver and then uh, three people who are working the back, there's a way in which it's like a really um, well-honed dance troupe. You know, they know when like someone's gonna swing that can to them and they've got mm -hmm. a dump, or that I'm gonna run up here. There's very little verbal communication. There's just sort of like, we're gonna, you know, work this street and get it done as quickly as possible. Um, and so that was, really wonderful to watch just I would have loved to you know it'd be pretty hard to stage but it would be amazing just to you know get 50 people and say okay we're gonna stand at the bottom of the street and watch the crew go up the street and do what they do did any of that like a natural movement for them find themselves in the piece it did so all of the so I had uh, a series of moves which I think we're gonna try to highlight a little bit more so there was uh, just the the can there was the um, I mean our first rehearsal I basically asked them what are the movements that you do in your in your job so if someone was um, with you know sort of long hair and, and greenery and so we're like uh, doing the weed whacker and how does that you know so you got to start the engine you know yeah. and how do the sweeping motion or uh, the person who has the electric saw, who's in charge of cutting trees. Mm -hmm. And so all of those movements, so the trash can, even the parking enforcement, you know, they have their little machine. And so we turn that into this sort of sassy, like, I'm writing a ticket. <laughs> I'm printing a ticket. And now I'm going to stick that ticket. Um, so all of that turned into movement, which was really fun. Full production, um, we conducted interviews with several of the workers. So their voices would be the prelude and the, the intro and outro to a lot of the pieces. So you'd hear the director speaking, you'd hear someone from parking enforcement, you'd hear a trash worker speaking. And it was really amazing to have the voices of actual people, to see them in a different context, mm -hmm. but still in their uniforms. Yeah. And so for the public, I think it was this really um, eye-opening experience. It was fun, and it was certainly a celebration, but so many people were like, I'm, I'll never look at my, you know, the guy who picks up my trash the same way again. Like, and, you know, they shared about how difficult their job is, how thankless their job often is. But the commitment they had toward it 
And so that sort of dignity and respect was something that was really important to convey. I think, you know, people have seen flash mobs on TV, and, and so it definitely had a flash mob quality to it. Um, also just setting, the vehicle drivers were amazing, and being able to set vehicles to music. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that was really exciting. And definitely by the end, I'm looking forward to this year because I think we'll have even more people wanting okay. to participate. Um, but I also just think, I think so many of us love to dance but don't f- necessarily feel comfortable or welcome. Mm-hmm. And so to have that opportunity to just express joy in that way, I think it's, it's really incredible. There is amazing precedent for this kind of work. Artist Meryl Latterman Eucles in the 1970s spent 8,500 hours with sanitation department workers in New York. And there's also Liz Lerman's Pot of Dirt performance. It was shown outside the National Building Museum in D.C., where performers and bobcat operators danced to Swan Lake. And there's also the documentary with contemporary visual artist Vic Munez called Wasteland. This artist traveled to the world's largest landfill in Rio de Janeiro and developed art and relationships with the pickers there. Yeah, that's a really great question. I think what appeals to me about a non-traditional performer is that excitement of transformation that often happens. Mm -hmm. So... It's also, for me as an artist and educator, it's a really good reminder of how to go back to the beginning. Hmm. And then the process, and you see someone really um, who may have struggled with a particular movement, and now they have to master it, and what they have to do in order to, to get it down pat. performance of Healing Wars, there's always a character played by a veteran who's not a professional dancer or performer. For the last year, Navy veteran Paul Hurley has been reenacting his story. On stage, Paul is not playing a fictional character. Instead, he describes and embodies his specific story. Paul is a single-leg amputee, and at each performance, he tells the story of how he was wounded in Iraq. His fellow performers stand in as locals, and dancer Keith Thompson plays his fellow soldier and friend. As the group reenacts the accident, one dancer even plays Paul's seatbelt. Several scenes later, in Healing Wars, Keith Thompson again has a duet with Paul. In the movement, they support one another, stretching back and forth, and in one graceful move, Paul also lifts Keith over his shoulders in a fireman carry. It's hard to explain, but there's one moment that will always stand out for me. Paul and Keith are sitting side by side, 
and hanging over the edge of the bench, you see three legs because Paul has just removed his prosthetic. And here's Paul, in his own words, describing how this duet with Keith developed. But he started talking to me, and he's like, okay, well, from your story, he's so like, he I can kind of pull these, before. yeah, I, I, we've just kind of gone through that, and then went out into like a separate room, um, where it was just Keith and I, and everybody else was practicing on some other stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and he was like, okay, well, let's try to figure this out. Just kind of, Show me like some of the some of the movements that you know you may have made during this whole um, incident. Well, you know I was thinking about different things, and one of the one of the things that really stood out was when you know I kind of got out of the car and like was like staring up at the moon, and then we started talking about therapy and everything like that, and mm-hmm. uh, being on, on the mats and like all the you know constant work with physical physical therapists yeah. and stuff like that. So it was like. Um, the duet kind of is this it's me kind of being in that moment mm-hmm. and kind of reliving all these experiences you already had like a movement vocabulary right you just right. it wasn't considered well, dance movement alright well I'll just keep working with you here and see if we can come up with something and then uh, yeah Keith really made me feel comfortable um, just kind of doing all that Paul's like story the veteran story is what makes Healing Wars exceptionally authentic. Experiencing his accident, the loss of his friend, and his recovery at Walter Reed with each performance means Paul had some more challenging nights. But more than a year later, he also sees his performance as one additional component to his healing. Kind of bring yourself back into focus. So sometimes it can be difficult, but other times it feels, it feels very healing. Uh, I mean, it really does. It's like, I feel like I've just, after that talk or after the play, sometimes I feel just like got something off my chest, you know? Did you feel a little lighter? Yeah. Um, That was one of the things I liked about it. But it all depends. Every day is different. They represent and or are symbolic of several ideas that matter a lot to me and I don't know if that dehumanizes them to suggest that I'm using them as a kind of a key uh, a key into really big ideas that I have about art but um, I, I, um, I think that uh, I mean I really believe that everybody that human beings and actually a lot of animals <laughs> have enormous um, capacity to express and I mean I'll use the word creative but there's a lot of small sub things inside that that's a big word for the things that I'm talking about and um, I believe that a lot of that those small things in uh, the professional world get subsumed by things that the whatever the current professional idea is in a given century, what what it becomes the dominant representation of art, and that sometimes a lot of those sub things are lost inside what the professional deems important. But the professional wraps itself up in some really cool stuff. That's very very enchanting for a person like me. I love the challenge. I love the craft. I love the the push. I love the dynamic. I love the um, 
the isolation. I love the, the, the uh, pursuit. All those things that a professional gets to have, I adore. And, uh, but in doing that, if I only live in that world, I'm gonna lose those sub-sparkles that are like so important to me. One of them is authenticity. One of them is a naturalness. One of them is um, a kind of an innate beauty uh, that you see, for example, when, when it, you know, when we get, it, it's, it's kind of like when an animal's curious, you know how gorgeous they become, like no matter what they are, if they're curious, you know, they get curious about whatever, their whole body changes the way they, it's like that. It's like that deep kind of thing. It's so innate. So when you have a person like Paul or Deanna or the dogs and the peace with the animals mm -hmm. or, um, a person with a disability or someone who's not able-bodied in the way that the other dancers are or old people because the old people did it right away from the beginning it it does a couple things it forces the viewer to say oh I guess she doesn't mean it's about technique because they don't have any all right so right away you don't you if you're the viewer you're the person in the audience and you see this old person you you you, you have you know if you're willing to say well she must have done it for some, some reason yeah if, if that's true then you go, okay, what is that? And then you get an expansion of what art is. And I find that thrilling. Secondly, in the early years when I was doing this, I did feel that by having people who were much, much, much less trained in the room, with those who are highly trained, that you couldn't talk in code, mm. you couldn't slide over stuff in, in this sort of sub-wink-wink wink agreement that we have about what's good. You had to keep revisiting it. And that's really healthy. So just the process itself, yeah. you know, was different. And then, you know, I, I have this expression, you know, the more you're you, the more I get to be me. Mm -hmm. That even though we're looking for common moments where we're together and that might be expressed through unison or just through the fact that we're all together on stage or something like that. But, you know, when you have those kinds of extremes, it's, in some ways it's, you, you can see the distinctions in such a beautiful way. So I love that. And then, you know, it, it changes the story. I mean, that's the main, the, 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 maybe the biggest thing is that they're contributing to the story in a way that without them, the story couldn't be told. And that's really important to me. But, that, but I, and one last thing is that, you know, their authenticity brings out the authenticity in the professionals who otherwise you might go, oh, ho-hum. You know, there's a 25-year-old woman up there who's, you know, trained since she was eight. Oh, well, wait, let me see the specificity in her. who gets to make. In her book, Hiking the Horizontal, Liz Lerman emphatically states, I am interested in performers who look like people dancing, not dancers dancing. After hearing from Elizabeth, Holly, and Paul, I'd like us to broaden that question a little and ask, who gets to participate? Who gets to dance, sing, or paint? But also who gets to watch, listen, and respond? Whose stories are you hearing in a concert hall or seeing at a museum? For this episode's creative challenge, I'd like you to think back to Holly's choreography in Touched Truck Ballet and Paul's dance in Healing Wars. The movement in those performances came from the everyday movement of the participants. 
So here's the question for you. What gestures do you make on a daily basis? And how could those movements find their way into a dance? Take a moment to consider what your quote natural dance is. And I challenge you to capture that via video or picture. And then upload your response to the website, podcastsonprocess.com, or use the hashtag on Instagram. So I have to say thank you to just a few folks. First, thank you to the faculty of curatorial practice, to my extraordinary mentors, and to my support team from the contemporary. The music you'll hear in this series was composed and recorded by the remarkable Ruby Fulton and the band Nudie Suits. And thank you to Estelle Klein and Sean Tubbs, my audio engineer magicians. A big thank you goes out to my classmates and my beautiful friends in curatorial practice, and to my husband, my unwavering volunteer and MacGyver on all of this. And last but not least, thank you to Liz Lerman, the stunning artist who graciously opened up her life and process to me. <laughs>